Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You hear about people doing tree changes. Well, Goodwood would be an idyllic little town to move to. Holly Throsby has created the town and even given us, us, the reader, a map. Well, not only welcome to Melbourne, but welcome to 3CR. Tell us a little bit about Goodwood. Well, Goodwood is a town which is in New South Wales, inland from the south coast of New South Wales, which is indicated a couple of times in the book. I will hint it at Um yeah, it's a small community. There is a there's a there's a school, a high school, um, but there's just a small set of shops on the main road on Cedar Street, like a pub and a Vinnie's and a butcher and a real estate agent, a secondhand bookshop. So it's um yeah, it's a kind of a rural a rural setting that's kind of between nowhere good, <laughs> good or anywhere else. <laughs> I love your description about um, Nance, who runs the grocer supermarket mixed business. Nance liked to mix everyone's business with her own and with everyone else in town. So <laughs> you get the idea that they all know what's, well, what's going to happen. Yeah, no, it's definitely a place where everybody knows everybody, um, which I think is the experience of most people who've lived in country towns is that they have that experience. I mean, it can be the same experience in you know, an apartment building in the city or in a peninsula suburb. But, um, yeah, I wanted the spread of information in Goodwood to be quite organic um, through, you know, through characters meeting and talking in person. There's also a mixture of families in Goodwood. We have, uh, well, the the normal family, two kids, but then, you know, you realise that some of these kids have come to Goodwood especially like Pearl, who's got a horse obsession. So it was much easier to have a horse obsession in Goodwood. Yeah, uh, Pearl is the daughter of Bart, um, who's the butcher, and she, yeah, she's obsessed with horses. So her, her, her parents do the good deed of moving moving to a place where they can have as proper stables. But, yeah, there are lots of different family structures. Step uh, families thrown in. Yeah, I mean, that, that, I think that's pretty re- reflective of the way the, the, every, the society works these days. But I, I was interested in, in non-traditional family structures. Um, and, yeah, I think Jean Brown, who's the narrator of the book, she, she has a single mom. her mom's adopted. Um, but really strong female role models, really beautiful parenting, I think, in, for her as a central character. And then, you know, a lot of other families who are experiencing very different levels of, um, of parenting, whether that be an absent or an incompetent or, a, you know, an abusive parent. But I, I, wanted, um, I wanted the community to feel representative, representative of, um, of, you know, all of our shared experiences. Absolutely. Well, it all sounds fantastic. But then there are the tragedies. <laughs> yeah, so Goodwood is about um, essentially about two people who go missing from the town. Um, first of all, Rosie White, who's 18, and a girl that Jean thinks is just the coolest girl in town. She goes to her bedroom one evening, says goodnight, and is never seen again. And then exactly a week later, Bart MacDonald, the butcher, um, goes fishing on the lake and never comes home and they just find his boat. And these are things that are introduced in the first chapter, so yeah. it's not really a spoiler to say that these things happen. But I guess Goodwood is about the town dealing with the, firstly, this this loss um, and, and the kind of 
haunting nature of the missing um, and also with grief and with their own sort of personal traumas and how they deal with that. Jean, this is the young 17-year-old who has a, a Labrador dog called Backflip. Yeah. I, Holly Throsby, I think you're a little bit keen on dogs. <laughs> you know, Blackfoot really has a character it, to itself. Um, Backflip, now because they walk the dog, this Labrador, and likes water, they, they're constantly around. And so Jean picks up or sees stuff that, well, she helps to work out. The mystery. Yeah, well, I guess, I mean, Jean's not kind of like a girl detective or anything like that, but she is, she does, she has some involvement with the story as it as it goes on. And her her mum's cousin, Mac, is mm. Constable Mac McKenzie, who's the policeman from the town. But, I mean, George is looking back from somewhere later in life when I guess all of the things, you know, have been revealed and are now known. Um, there are, of course, a lot of aspects of the story that we can only hear, we can only know Jean's sort of version and her perception of but yeah she is an observer she's someone who likes um to hear about people and she likes to be around whilst not being overly involved in these things herself but having uh mac the policeman come to dinner socially you know and sort of try and interrogate him for what's going on and it's hard to do and it's also jean has a best friend called george now a girl and these two girls you know they're, they're in their 12th year year 12 yeah they're in year 12 and yeah, let's hear it, Holly <laughs> Let's hear a little bit about well, well, what often happens in <sighs> year 12 with young girls. Um, okay, well, this is a, a part uh, where, where George and Jean are having a discussion. I love the friendship between George and Jean. I think it's really beautiful. And I guess it's it's set at that time in life when, you know, when you first are discovering your romantic interests and it kind of does draw you away from your friendships and more into your, you know, romantic relationships. And I, I think it's really nice the way George and Jean are experiencing these things at the same time. So, um, yeah, I'll read this little bit that you've asked me to read. <laughs> um, George's 17th birthday had been two days earlier. I'm a whole year past my age of consent, she'd said. So, I don't know, I consented. That seemed like an insubstantial reason to have sex with Lucas Carris to me. How was it, I asked. I don't know, maybe it's been hyped up too much, like when we finally got to go to Pet Porpoise Pool in Coffs Harbour, said George, in a more amused tone than I'd expected. You know how when you blow up a balloon and let it go and it just goes in circles really fast? I was laughing by then and George was laughing too. She seemed genuinely entertained by parting with her virginity. Poor Lucas, I said, a bit of an anticlimax. Not for poor Lucas, said George. <laughs> I think, yes, that's probably true to a lot of young girls. <laughs> this is one of their many kind of schoolyard discussions, yeah. which I really enjoyed. I love their friendship and I, I really um, – it's it's quite similar, in fact, to a friendship that I had um, in high school where a lot of the time was, was just spent making fun of everything because we, we weren't old enough yeah. to really deal with the kind of adult world. And I think that's what's really nice about having a young narrator in Goodwood is that I was able to deal with some really dark um, sort of themes, like some quite adult themes. But I think that um, the youth, that, that spectrum of youth that you get through, through, through Jean's vision kind of distills a lot of that tension and, and, and lets a lot of humour come in because it's quite a funny book, I, oh, I hope. Oh, absolutely. Now, I think what we should sort of mention is where, when, what time have you set it? Oh, the book is set in 1992, so uh, Jean 17 at that time. Um, a great year, I think. 1992, look, I loved a few of the remembrances through here. 
um, Jean's nana, an avid reader, was reading Wild Swans. I think, you know, <laughs> anyone old enough <laughs> would like that. There's Naverna, a Nevermind track, and the newspaper carried advertising for cigarettes. A couple on a white horse with big white smiles for Alpine and a man with a brumby and a rope had a big dirty smile for Marlborough. <laughs> Why 1992? Just... Um, well... I like. I, I really relate to the early '90s when I had the idea of having a teenage narrator. I was considering what it was like when I was a teenager. I, mean, I wasn't as old as Jean is in in 1992. I think I was about 13. Um, but it was a really exciting time for music, um, and so I was. Re- you know, I was. My eyes were kind of opening to the world, and it was also a really interesting time for New South Wales. I. I'm interested in, um, I read a lot of, I really enjoy crime and history. I enjoy true crime books. Um, but I also have always been someone who cuts out newspaper articles and stores them away. And when I was a teenager, any big event, I would I would cut out newspaper articles and keep them. And there were some pretty horrific crimes that were coming to light in New South Wales in 1992, which without going into them, I, I think it's important that Goodwood... Goodwood's a bit of an every town, and it obviously is a work of fiction, but I was very keen to set it against the backdrop of a really real-life New South Wales. I, look, you can't name too many state forests. No, you can't. Belang alone. You, know, you think, ooh. Okay, so what do we know about Rosie? You know, why did she just go, well, well we don't know why she started just at the fir- At first we don't know. I think a lot becomes clear about Rosie as the book continues. Mm. And I think a lot of the characters in Goodwood are, are carrying some kind of trauma and Rosie is certainly um, certainly one of those characters. And I, I really I've had a, a lot of um, warmth for her. She's someone who, as the book you know, starts. She's she she goes missing a couple of days later, so we don't ever really see her in the real world as the as the story is going through. Um, finding out, you know, where she is 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 something that I hope readers will will be compelled to do. But yeah, I think she she sort of typifies to me everything about the kind of girls I thought were just so cool when I was mm. in high school. And I think a lot of the girls you do think are really cool have a quite a quite a lot of darkness to them. She left a boyfriend behind. Yeah. And he didn't know anything about it. Well, you know. Or did he? (laughs) All of these things will be revealed. Boyfriend Davo, now he lived at home with a yard full of car parts and and a very seedy uncle living in a caravan. And this this just irks me. The uncle would be seen constantly with his overalls unbuttoned just under the navel. (laughs) Horrible. So Rosie worked at the local takeaway. So everybody saw her, they knew her, and uh, just disappeared. Mm. Um, you've, you've, we've got a lot of really interesting people here. We've got uh, Big Jim and Fitzy. I think that you just wanted you just wanted a you know cartoon characters. <laughs> um, but little things that you've really researched well. How did you learn about all of these forensics and what happens with bodies? Is is that part of your reading, as you said? Um, yeah, I mean, I I I do enjoy that kind of thing. I was a huge amount of research went into writing this book, but a lot of it was really enjoyable and just incidental as I was going along because as the story unfolded, um, I had such a strong feeling of the place that I was in when I was writing it. I had a really strong feeling for the characters, and as I as I felt where they were going and as they went off in their various directions, and the story kind of went where it went, um, I did really enjoy. 
you know, learning myself about a lot of the things that need that I needed to know about. Um, and yeah, I guess in terms of the characters, I really am interested in psychology and human relationships and well, the idiosyncratic things that make people kind of who they are. And I think Goodwood, yeah, there's a lot of interesting people that live there. A lot of them that I'd really like to sit down and have a beer with if I could. <laughs> what a, do you know anybody with a photic sneeze reflex? Photic sneeze photic reflex. Photic sneeze. Um, weirdly enough, my daughter has it, and I and I was pregnant when I was writing this book, and I thought it was just so funny that she has a very mild case of it. Every time we we come out into the sunlight, she sneezes, and it's a it's not. I mean, I think it's relatively uncommon, but it also is hereditary. Um, so yeah, I have known I have known people in my life that have photic sneeze reflex, which yeah, which is when you sneeze uncontrollably when you're exposed to bright light, which can be very dangerous when you're having some kind of medical procedure <laughs> administered. <laughs> Holly Throsby, the only the other thing that I think you really capture beautifully here is cows. Oh, good. Cows and, you know, I'm very they... fond of cows. Yeah. Um, Ethan told me the cows have four digestive compartments. They drink about a bathtub of water a day and they sit down when it's going to rain. This is from page 64. <laughs> but there was also the man who owned the cows, Kevin and his cows. He lowed and made deep sounds. His cattle dog, Remington, barked and the cows mooed and the man and the dog made a three-part harmony under the silent sky. <laughs> I think that's looking back to your musical um, writing. That's quite a lyrical phrase, isn't it? <laughs> it um, yeah, look, I, I was very fond of Kevin, who's the who owns the dairy, the Fairley Dairy, because his name is Kevin Fairley at the Fairley Dairy. And I, yeah, I really enjoyed um, writing his character. I think it is a book that treats animals with a lot of respect um because I do I really do love cows I love I'm, I'm an animal lover um not to say that it's unrealistic because this is a Goodwood is a very meat-eating carnivorous town <laughs> as um probably every single Australian country town mom she left Goodwood after she tried so hard to get away as a teenager but she's now back living in Goodwood and her advice and I think this is lovely Growing up, working out when what when out what makes you happy, not what you think might or what you think should, but what actually does. Yeah, I'm glad that you picked that paragraph. I think that's that's a really important lesson that um, that Celia Brown, who's Jean's mum, gives her, and I think it is you know it's probably quite incidental when she said it, but I think as a as a parent. That's probably the best thing you can say to your kid. And I've thought about that a bit since writing the book because I wasn't a parent yet when I wrote the book. Um, but, yeah, I kind of think that it's hopefully a sort of strong strong parenting role model in her mum that allows Jean to really be herself, I think, and to to allow herself to go to places that, Perhaps she might not have not not having not having been given that strength um, from her mum and, and and potentially her nan as well. So Holly Throsby is given a book, Goodwood. It's and Goodwood itself, mystery, a little suspicion, but with a gentle humour. <laughs> oh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you, Holly. Thanks very much for having me. Can a would-be actor make a good detective? No. Now, the, no. The, well, the, the author has already answered the question. I've written the answer is probably not if we follow the career of the uh, main character in Robert Gott's uh, new novel, The Serpent's Sting. So, Robert, welcome back to the comfort 
comfortable surroundings of 3CR. Thank you very much, David. I do feel very comfortable here. This is like an annual visit. An annual visit. Well, that sort of speaks to how prolific you are with with your writing. But I must confess, I I wasn't as familiar with this series, the William Power series. I know. I was shocked. Oh, I'm sorry. I must apologise. But... Who is William Power? He's the naked man. <laughs> no, not quite. Although, oh. no, he does get naked in this. He always gets naked, David. <laughs> he always gets I know, William. He's, fortunately, uh, for the listener, he is, Robert Gott is now fully clothed in the studio. But who is William Power? Well, William, when I wrote the first William Power novel, which was set in Maryborough in Queensland, um, it was, it was, the, the very first one was based on a story that I grew up with. Uh, in because Mar- I, I come from Maribyrnong, this is the power of elocution, David. <laughs> uh, I come from Maribyrnong, and we grew up with a story about a girl who disappeared in 1942. She was 21, and she was found three weeks later in the town's water supply, dissolving in the town's water supply, so that everyone in the town had been drinking her and washing their hair with her and gargling with her and brushing their teeth with her. And and I always thought that story was fantastic. So I thought this would be the good basis for a novel. And then I needed uh, some kind of detective to solve this. Uh, I'd already decided to set it in 1942 because I think that is a fascinating period in Australian history. And both my... Yes, I was was going to raise that, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that, we'll get to that, yeah. So I I didn't want to create, at that stage, I didn't want to create a detective because I didn't want to learn anything about detecting and I didn't want to learn about the courts and the justice system and policing and forensics and all of that. And I needed someone who was mobile, so I came up with the idea of an actor and an actor is perfect because actors, God bless them, have a highly specific talent, but they are not necessarily the sharpest knives in the drawer. I am a man given to healthy introspection, but even if this hadn't been the case, I would have still, I would still have had to acknowledge in the court of self-awareness that I was temporarily without direction. As an actor, I was resting. As a private inquiry agent, I was resting. My love life was resting. Only the first of these caused me real grief. I was an actor, and I'd been thwarted in the expression of this noble art by circumstances and by the fog of ignorance and indifference that had settled over Melbourne since hostilities with Germany and Japan had begun. I needed the stage, not the applause. It was never about the applause. The way a teacher needs needs pupils, a dentist needs teeth, and a surgeon needs a rumbling appendix. I pondered this as I tried to sleep after the revelatory dinner. (laughs) Goodness me, it's like having William Power in the room. (laughs) Yeah, so he's that kind of actor. He's not even a very good actor, really. He's He's not not really very good at anything. He wants to play Shakespeare, but you've got him playing what? (laughs) Well, he gets he gets a job by accident as a pantomime dame in, in, in the in the Christmas uh, the Christmas pantomime season at the uh, Princess Theatre of Mother Goose, which was actually on at the time. So I just co-opted that, and I thought Will would be a great well, he wouldn't be a great pantomime dame, but it would be a humiliating thing for him to do, as he says in in there, it was a humiliating sideshow to the war. 
Um, but also then, uh, you have. Where did you get all your knowledge about actors? Because it's it's rather <laughs> it's rather true to the point. The performance of Mother Goose on the following day, Monday, the twenty first of December, was a good one, and I was pleased that Brian was in the audience to see it. The only disappointment was that Geraldine hadn't returned from Puckapunyal to play the fairy. Sophie, her understudy, was barely adequate. There was an amateur edge to her playing, and the crisp and rounded vowels weren't yet effortless. Half her mind was given over to putting into practice lessons learned in elocution. At intervals, she had the temerity to tell me that I was acting too broadly and that I was diminishing her more nuanced reading. As she was speaking to me in the wings, a little grimace of distaste crossed her undeniably pretty face. A person with a more fragile ego than my own might have been wounded. I was, however, well used to the neuroses of actors and actresses and recognised in her complaint that she was simply giving expression to the threat posed by one actor to another. It was the threat of a competing talent. Crouched in the psyche of all actors and actresses is a hungry demon who feeds on the insecurities of its host. (laughs) Where did you get this insight about actors? Because Jan and I met backstage. Uh, Look, I like... I like actors. And I, I do, I like actors. And I, I like the fact that they are, you know, forgive me, in the company of two actors, but, but you guys are the most neurotic people on earth. Well, we adopt another person's character to substitute for Yeah, but own. also you've got to go out on stage every night and every night is a, is a tightrope act. Mm. So every night you can fail. And you fail in front of a whole lot of people. And I find, first of all, the desire to do that just frankly bizarre. And the courage to do that is extraordinary, but it does create a kind of interesting yeah. neuroses a, a, in, in actors. A challenge. Yeah. Um, some see it as intellectual. Some people I've seen actors absorb another character. That's right. Uh, it's, a, it's a really peculiar kind of, uh, forgive me again, <laughs> it's a really peculiar kind of narcissism. Well, it's true. Actors crave affirmation. In a, yeah, in a way, um, that acknowledgement. But it, as you say, it's probably not applause. It's, it's a recognition uh, in some yeah. ways. But we should move on <laughs> rather than condemn actors. But these books, these books all come with a, sub, a subtitle called A William Power Fiasco. That's right, because everything he touch touches just turns to crap. <laughs> he's not... But, but he, is, he is a man without malice, and I think he's quite witty, but he is... Uh, he just can't get anything right. So all of these books, all four of them in the series, they kind of unravel. <laughs> well, this is what I wanted to get to, the, the structure of the story. It's not like there's a murder that we have to investigate. No. It, it evolves yes. in many ways. Yes, because that's, that's his life. He stumbles through life and he stumbles upon crimes in which he is inevitably implicated because of his own incompetence. Yes. He need not be, but he ends up being implicated. And then because he's implicated and becomes a person of interest to the police, he feels like it's up to him to solve it just to get himself out but of But every plan he tries to put in oh, place comes... appalling. But you've got <laughs> a range of other characters. Well, just the background which, uh, with which the novel starts. His mother had been um, having an affair um, with one Peter yes, uh, Pete, Gilbert. Peter Gilbert. Um, and this sort of sets everything in motion. The discovery of this um, sort of affair in 1942 would have been 
shocking. Well, it was shocking to Will, but if you in, in the previous books, which you haven't read, David, in the <laughs> again, pre- I apologise. <laughs> typical actor. Um, <laughs> in the previous books, we discovered that yes, he discovered they were having an affair in 1942, but his brothers knew about it for years. It's just that Will. Because he's so solipsistic, Will had not noticed that his mother was having an affair for years. And also, then another thread then in talking about being unaware, his brother Brian, who's part of the intelligence community uh, service, has a remarkable ability to cross-dress. Which he discovers in book three of the William Powell fiasco, (laughs) which is set up in the Northern Territory when they're in a concert party entertaining troops. But again, um, William's not... Uh, really aware, and the book ends then on... Oh, uh, don't give the ending away. I'm not going to give the ending away, (laughs) but um, that sort of uh, interesting insight into, or potential... Which would suggest that the reader knows. Oh, yeah, the reader but, is. But, but William's still blind. No, William's got no ignorant. idea. That's the challenge of writing these books because they're written in the first person. Yes. They're written through Will's eyes and through his mouth. And um, we have to know things that he doesn't. Even though he's reporting on what he's seeing, he's not actually seeing what What's we're going seeing. On. Yes. That's just the challenge of writing this and kind of book. And the language, William. Employs. I knew, even as I said this, that this was craven sophistry. You, you could almost get a sense of this, this pretentiousness of this character. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, now, you've then got a sort of master criminal, shall we say, one Albert Taylor? Yes, yes. Um, He's really a petty criminal rather than a master criminal. This isn't a world of master criminals. This is a world of petty criminals. But he seems to have... He's a very smart man. Yes. That's for sure. Um, yes. So, um, where did I have it? Um, on 257, Albert Taylor pointing... Albert Taylor raised the gun, levelled it at my head and pulled the trigger. The bullet went where it was supposed to go, over my shoulder and into the wall behind me, passing first through a small oil painting that I'd never liked. <laughs> So he's, he's in danger of his life. but um, No, no, no. He's an aesthete. He's an aesthete. There are things that offend him, even in moments of high crisis. And, well, there are these... He yes, has standards. These moments of crises. <laughs> uh, but Albert Taylor and the machinations going on there, yeah. because we have uh, a few dead bodies hanging around that sort of appear. Yes. Uh, uh, John Gilbert, the son Yes, of his putative... Um, Stepbrother. Stepbrother. Yeah. Uh, it dies yes. and is found in a cemetery. He's found in Melbourne General Cemetery. cemetery. At the foot of that. Have you been into Melbourne no. General Cemetery? Oh, there's this amazing statue of a winged angel holding a sword. It's huge. Right. And that's where the, the body is found at the foot of that. And then uh, an American soldier, Private Anthony Durbin, is found in William's bathtub. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah. You're going to have to read to find out. Um, it's but a, it is a farce. It, it's yes, a, it's a, a, a farcical sort of <laughs> happenings and goings on. Um, so we get this compounding in a conventional way of more bodies and, and yeah. growing, and also the disappearance of one Geraldine, yes, um, etc. So William actually has sex in this book. Oh, yeah, that's w- weren't there unusual. wasn't there sex in the others? Well, it which probably he, might explain he why never, I hadn't read them. You know? <laughs> he never gets that right either. Uh, there, there is, but it always goes awry. Well, he, he claims she was satisfied, doesn't he? Well, of course. <laughs> why wouldn't she be? She's having sex with William Power. <laughs> but then who, um, uh, Tyra, who compares himself to Tyrone Power? Yeah, he believes he looks like Tyrone Power. 
an actor, as he says, you know, a limited ability, but <laughs> and he doesn't. No one else thinks he does. Only he does. And then um, also, then getting back to that point we raised earlier, nineteen forty-two. Yeah, fascinating. You've got lots of these sorts of references, the uh, American camps, and I loved the one about Presbyterians um, <laughs> because um, Peter Gilbert had been having an affair with uh, Agnes, William's mother, and did Peter Gilbert's uh, His wife... Catholic. They're Catholic. Yeah, they were Catholic. Did his wife mind? No, she didn't hate him. She reserved her hatred for the <laughs> Presbyterians. <laughs> Which, if you understood the era, oh, yes, there was a the, visceral oh, hatred between was. the Protestants the, and the Catholics. Yeah, the sectarian so stuff. So was... the fascination with that era. Yeah, I am fascinated by that era. What? I mean, apart from the well, bodies decomposing because, yeah. in the water <laughs> yeah. supply. Partly because it is um, sufficiently distant from us to seem exotic as modern readers, and yet as sufficiently close to paradoxically seem strangely familiar. So you don't have to actually work very hard to create that world. There's a lot in it that's familiar. But, I mean, the detail that you're putting in yeah. about, you know, having to open up the cinemas on Sunday to cater yes. for the American yeah. troops. Yeah, which actually didn't last very long because the Presbyterians won that one really? and they shut them down. Yeah. Oh. So are we going to get football on uh, Good Friday <laughs> and things like that? That sort of attitude. Yes. social attitude that yes. sort of extant at the time. Yeah. Um, and that you have to be sort of familiar with. Yeah. Yeah, which is, is fascinating. <laughs> Look, Robert, unfortunately, we're going to have Where? to end the interview. Uh, <laughs> it just flies so quickly you when you're having fun, <laughs> especially when you're having fun. But uh, the serpent's sting with sort of um, references to Shakespeare in, in many ways. The uh, author is Robert Gott and the publisher is Scribe. So, Robert... You are wonderful. Once again, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you, in. David.